Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Functionally Autoimmune. I'm happy that you're here with me today because I have a fantastic guest that I know that you're not going to want to miss. So on the show today, we have Dr. Glenn Livingston. He's a PhD in psychology, and he's a veteran psychologist with a long time was a longtime CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm, which serviced several Fortune 500 companies. He has his own story and background that brought him to what he's doing today, which is helping people who are struggling with overeating and binge eating. And he's helped thousands of people across the country, and he's really done such a great job. Dr. Livingston has spent several decades researching the nature of binge eating and overeating. And so through all of this, he's created his program and what he does today. And so I'm so happy to have him on the show. Hi, Glenn. How are you doing today? I'm doing just fine. It's nice to be here, Brandy. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. So I just gave, gave a very brief overview of your amazing background and all the things that you've done. So can you give us kind of a, a history of what you've done, what brought you to this work, what's gotten you interested in, in, in the topic of binge eating and all of those things? Well, are, are you familiar with Syas at Long Island by any chance? Yes, absolutely. Oh, really? Do you remember the Woodbury Country Deli? Oh, I don't know if I remember that. That doesn't sound familiar. <laughs> if you remember the Woodbury Country Deli on Woodbury Road, and you happen to have stopped by, and they were out of chocolate and pizza, the, the odds are that I was there just before you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, it's my kind of joking way to say it. I, I'm not just a doctor that works with eating disordered people. I, I'm, um, I'm someone who had a very serious problem with overeating myself. And when I was about 17, I figured out that because I'm six foot four and modestly muscular, I could eat whatever I wanted to if I worked out for two hours a day. Sure. And as I got a little older and, you know, I, I didn't think it was a problem. I thought it was, you know, like a superpower, like Doug Graham says, mm -hmm. I could have, you know, whole pizzas or two or a box of muffins or a box of lattes, box of um, donuts or whatever, whatever wasn't nailed down, I could have. When, when I was older and married and 22, 23, going to graduate school, commuting two hours a day to go to classes and see patients and coming home and working on the business at night, uh, my ex-wife was a marketing researcher and we had a, you know, another business consulting with um, the Fortune 500 companies, um, which I'm kind of embarrassed about, by the way, it was largely big food and big pharma. And I feel like I was on the wrong side of the war, but We'll get to that. I, I just didn't have the time is the point to to work out like that. But the food seemed to still have a hold of me like it had a life of its own. Sure. And I, I'd be sitting with a suicidal patient and I'd be thinking, when can I go get a pizza? Right. And I, I, I'd be um, I'd be working with a couple where there was an affair that was just exposed and they're really at risk. And I've been thinking, when, when can I get to the deli and dislodge my jaw and empty the, the tray into it? Right. Um, and it really bothered me. I, I come from a family of 17 psychologists and psychotherapists. And the standing joke is that if something breaks in the house, everybody knows how to ask it how it feels and nobody knows how to fix it. But, but, but psychology was the most important thing to me. And psychology, clinical psychology, it's, it's, it's not really an intellectual endeavor. I mean, you have to know a lot of things, but it's not like you're solving a puzzle of people's lives and you hand them the piece and say, rotate it this way and this is where you put it. And they say, thanks, stock, I'll get right on that. Sure. They, they have to love and trust you enough to be willing to move out of their comfort zone and take that piece in the first place and even see that this is what's going on. So the figuring it out part is pretty easy. The getting them to love you and trust you part is hard and it requires a soulful presence. And half the time I was you know, so obsessed with food, it was hard to give them that soulful presence. Um, so that's what bothered me more than anything else. But nevertheless, um, I, I had a lot of trouble with food. I am um, coming from the family that I came from. I thought that the approach to solve it would be to take a depth psychology approach and love myself then. If I, you know, I figured I have a hole in my heart. And if I could solve that hole in my heart, then I would stop trying to fill the hole in my stomach. And I went to the best psychologists and the best psychiatrists. And I explored everything about my childhood and everything about my current uh, relationship in life and explored my career. And I had all these spiritual pursuits. I went to Overeaters Anonymous. I took medication. 
Um, I even conducted a 40,000 person study of my own on the internet in the days when internet clicks were cheap. And in the end, my conclusion was that it was a very soulful journey. It's a part of who I am. I don't regret having taken it. But you know, I get a little thinner and a lot fatter, a little thinner, a lot fatter, a little thinner, a lot fatter. Um, And the love yourself thin approach just wasn't working. It just wasn't working. And the doctors were yelling at me saying I was going to die by the time I was 35. And, um, you know, my triglycerides were 1100 and my um, I had eczema and rosacea and it was probably almost 300 pounds, 280, something like that. I, I stopped weighing myself at 257. I developed a fat phobia of the, the scale. I got sick of it. Um, and there were a couple of things that conspired to change that paradigm for me. Uh, from a love yourself thin paradigm to a be the alpha wolf of your own mind paradigm, like more of a tough love approach. The three things that that pointed that out to me were one, in the consulting I was doing for the big food industry, I saw that they were spending millions, if not billions, on engineering hyper palatable foods, which were concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and excitotoxins and salt. And it was all designed to hit the bliss point in the reptilian brain without giving us enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And the result of that is addiction. And that has nothing to do with the fact that my mama didn't love me enough or I had a hole in my heart or I was in a bed. It was all BS. It just had nothing to do with that. Um, This is a very powerful uh, physiological um, addictive element that was targeting a part of my neurology that doesn't know love. The reptilian brain the seat of the feast and famine response, or fight or flight. It's, it's, it's a survival organ, and it's designed to overtake everything else that's going on in your brain and say, you know, just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt. It's, right. and, and when the reptilian brain looks at something in the environment, its evaluative mindset is, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? Right. Eat, mate, or kill right? Yeah. No love there. No love there. That's interesting. So the part of the brain that responds to food addiction, that's throwing out my best laid plans and diets that I go on every single week. And I'm trying to say, oh, poor baby, you must need love. It doesn't know anything about love. It's just like eat, made, or kill. It's the, the mammalian brain, which kind of layered on top of the uh, reptilian brain, whether you believe God put it there or it evolved, it's it's on top of there and it has the ability to suppress or inhibit the survival response to say, wait a minute, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact does that have on the people that you love, on the, you know, in your tribe and your community? And then there's the neocortex, which delays you even further and says, wait a minute, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what about your long-term goals, like health and fitness and weight loss? What about the kind of person that you're trying to be in society? What about your art or your music or your spirituality or everything that we think of as uniquely human? That's kind of more in the higher brain. And I'm, I'm an amateur at all this neurology stuff. I've read enough to be dangerous. I'm really not a, that's not my field of expertise. Um, a little bit because I'm a psychologist, but not really. Um, and, and so I said, maybe this is more like an alpha wolf approach. Maybe it's that the upper brain has to be superior to the lower brain. Maybe I have to assert superiority in the same way that I'm asserting superiority over my bladder if it says that I really have to go to the bathroom. If I really had to pee right now, I would say, wait a minute, I'm talking to Brandy. I will take care of this need later. But um but, you know, I, I right now I'm going to conduct the interview and I'm in charge, not you. Um, or our reproductive organs generate very powerful attractions. And if there was an attractive person on the street, I wouldn't run out and kiss her. Yeah. Right. I, I, I would just keep doing what I'm doing because I can get in a lot of trouble. Um, yeah. works, our society expects something more from us. We're supposed to control that. So why can't I do the same thing with food? It's just a very powerful biological urge that I'm really in control. Um, And then then there was the advertising industry. Mm. And I saw that they were 
um, they were very facile at convincing us that we needed their wares to survive. So right. for example, I remember um, I had a friend who was a vice president at a major food bar manufacturer. And I remember him telling me as he was leaving the company that the best marketing insight they ever had was to take the vitamins out of the bar and put the money into the packaging instead. So they made multicolored, vibrant packaging, which on an evolutionary level signals to the brain that there's a diversity of micronutrients available. So that's an evolutionary button, right? Yeah. But, but they actually took the nutrients out of the bar and decided to fake us out instead. It goes on all across the industry. Yeah. all across the industry. So that's another force that has nothing to do with my, you know, internal psychological struggles. Right. Um, okay. Then the last thing was that study that I did. And there were three conclusions of that study. One was that people who struggled with chocolate, they tended to be lonely or brokenhearted. And me personally, that's what I struggled with. I struggled with chocolate and I was lonely and brokenhearted sure. um, or, or sometimes a little depressed. Um, the other two are less relevant to this discussion, but I, they're kind of interesting. I found that people who struggle with soft, chewy, starchy things like pizza or bagels or bread, they tend to be stressed at home. And people who struggle with crunchy, salty things like you know pretzels or potato chips, they tend to be stressed at work. Wow. But so so before I before I try to apply any of this or talk about it publicly, I called my mom who was not only a therapist, but she raised me. Sure. And I said, mom, right? <laughs> so, so I said, mom, what, what could possibly have set up this pattern? You know, in, in my youth, why do I go to chocolate when I feel lonely or depressed? And yet, yes, I am feeling a little lonely and everything because I'm not I'm struggling in the marriage, but, but why am I running to chocolate when this happens? And she gets a horrible look on her face, this is on Skype, and a horrible sound in her voice. And she says, I'm so sorry, honey. I'm so sorry. And I said, mom, what is it? You know, I said, it doesn't, I don't care what it is. It was 40 years ago. This was 15 years ago this week, I guess, yeah. um, or this year. Um, I was in my, and I was in my early forties at the time. And I said, it doesn't matter. I forgive you. I love you. I just want to figure this out. And she says, um, well, honey, when you were one year old in 1965, your dad was a captain in the army. And they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. And we were trying to get pregnant with your sister. And I was terrified I was going to be an army widow with um, two small kids. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, my father, your grandfather, had just gotten out of jail. And I did not know he was doing these things. He was guilty. Uh, my whole world fell apart. And I was just lonely and depressed and anxious sitting and staring at the wall most of the time. I didn't have the wherewithal to play with you and hug you and love you and feed you. Um, in the right way anyway, when you came running over to me. So I got a, this is my mom talking, I got a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup and I put it in a refrigerator on the floor. And when you came running to me for love, I'd say, go get your Bosco, honey. And you go crawling over to the refrigerator and you'd go suck on the bottle and you go into a chocolate sugar coma. Um, and at that point, if this were a movie, Mom and I would have a big hug and a big cry and we'd forgive each other and I would never have trouble with chocolate again, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and mom and I, you know, we had it with us over Skype, so we had a metaphorical, you know, hug and a cry. And, and yeah. um, it softened how I felt about myself. It did have a psychological impact on me. Sure. I, le I learned all kinds of things about my mom that I didn't know before, mm -hmm. um, but my eating got worse. And the reason my eating got worse was because there was a little voice in my head. I, I'm not schizophrenic, but there was a little <laughs> voice of justification in my we head. We all have it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we do. And it went something like this. It said, you know what, Glenn, you are right. Our mama didn't love us enough and she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in our heart. And until we can get out of this marriage and find the love of our life, we're going to have to go right on binging on chocolate. Yippee, let's go get some right now. So it was this voice of justification. Right. So at this point, my thinking about emotional eating really changed. I said, wait a minute. Up until this point, I've assumed that emotions were like a fire and they caused overeating. If they were too intense or upsetting, they caused overeating. Right. Then I realized that 
you could have a roaring fire in a well-contained fireplace and it would become an asset, not a liability. People would gather around it and um, tell stories and make memories and laugh and cry and hug and kiss. And it, it would be, um, it'd be the center of hearth and home. Right. But, but if the fireplace was faulty, if there were holes in the fireplace, mm -hmm. then ashes could, ashes could get out and burn down the house. Sure. That's when I said to myself, maybe it's this little voice of justification that is poking holes in the fireplace. Combined with my understanding of the external forces that were driving, um, you know, driving overeating and like targeting the reptilian brain. Right. And every time, every time I was looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container, there's some fat cat in a white suit and a mustache laughing all the way to the bank, right? Right, exactly. When I really started to understand the corporate, um, the corporate greed involved with that, yeah. and the amount of money that was targeting my reptilian brain, I said, this is a little crazy, because you know, I'm a sophisticated psychologist, and I've been in the New York Times, and the Los Angeles Times, and you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so I figured that my solution for overeating was eventually going to be something fairly sophisticated. But this is what worked for me. I'm always kind of embarrassed when I get to this part. And I, I was not really going to talk about this. This was going to be something private I did. I decided to call my reptilian brain my inner pig. I could have called it a food monster. It works just as well to call it a food monster or my inner junkyard dog. But I called it my inner pig because I don't know why I'm a guy. I love it. And, and I decided that I had to draw a very clear line in the sand because I needed to know when the inner pig was active. Mm -hmm. And I needed to know the difference between healthy and unhealthy eating. Um, in our society, we're told to follow guidelines like eat healthy 90% of the time and indulge 10% of the time. But no one really ever defines what that means or exactly when the 10% is. Right. So we're always busy making decisions about food and that wears down your willpower. So I said, no, I'm gonna draw a very clear line in the sand. Um, I will never have chocolate on a weekday again. I'll only ever have it on a Saturday or Sunday. And that way I know that if I'm in Starbucks and I'm standing in front of the counter and there's a big hairy chocolate bar calling my name yeah. and I hear a voice in my head that says, you know what, Glenn, you worked out hard enough. You're not going to gain any weight if you have one chocolate bar today. It's just as easy to start tomorrow. Go ahead and get it. Yippee, let's go have some. I would say to myself, wait a minute. I don't eat chocolate on, on a Wednesday. That's not me. That's my inner pig and it's squealing for pig slop. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. Yeah. I, I, as ridiculous as that sounds, um, it would wake me up at the moment of impulse and it would give me those extra microseconds to make the right choice if I wanted to, to remember who I was and why. And it wasn't an instantaneous cure, but it was an instantaneous mindset shift. Sure. And I, I no longer felt powerless or confused or hopeless. It was no longer this, you know, crazy, mysterious thing inside of me, like I was being told it was from you know, the 12 step programs and stuff. No, it's so I, I said, wait a minute, I don't have a I don't have a disease. I have a healthy appetite that was corrupted by industry. Mm. I can call it my pig. I can separate from it. I can teach myself to be aware when it's active by, by having these very clear rules. <sighs> Over time, I realized that it was silly to it was silly to um, make rules that I was going to break. So I started making rules that were a little bit simpler to keep. And I figured out a set of rules that I would stay with. And I noticed that even though I wasn't losing weight, I got my spirit back. I felt like I was control in control and not the pig. And then as that happened, it's like the confidence that came with it, the dissolution of that sense of hopelessness and powerlessness gave me more motivation and it permitted me to then adopt some rules where I would lose weight. And slowly but surely, I came down over the course of several years. I kept a journal about the things that my inner pig would say for eight years. And I developed a kind of technique for disempowering it once I was aware of it. So I found that saying, I don't need pig stuff. I don't let firemen almost tell me what to do. wasn't quite enough. It was enough to wake me up, but it wasn't always enough to make the right decision. Sure. It, then I learned that the overeating decision is really a, a decision of the reptilian brain, the 
the it's an activation of the emergency response system inside of us and it's an error it's an erroneous activation of the emergency response system so i learned that i had to take myself out of that state of emergency um, physiologically what happens when you go into that state of emergency um, you know fight or flight feast or famine is your sympathetic nervous system gets you revved up and kind of increases your heart rate and, and your galvanic skin response and your perspiration, even your blood pressure. Right. So I started looking into the things that would activate your parasympathetic nervous system, which is the part of your brain, that part of your nervous system that gets you calmed down to rest and digest and make longer term strategic decisions and think things through, get you back into the neocortex. Yeah. Well, it turns out breathing is one of the best ways to do that. Mm -hmm. So when I would wake up and I would hear my pig squealing, you know, hey, Glenn, one bite's not going to hurt, or you can just start tomorrow. I say, okay, it's, it's, it's active. Now I have to do something. And the first thing I would do is I would take a deep breath and I would breathe out for longer than I breathed in. Um, I, I later learned to call this a 7-11 breath from Larry okay. Hammond. If, if you breathe in for a count of seven and you breathe out for a count of 11, if you think about it in the wild, if a hungry bear were chasing us, we would not have time to breathe out for longer than we breathe in. We'd have to be <laughs> taking up as much air as we could. So this is the opposite. And it seems to signal our whole nervous system that we're in a safe situation. So it, it activates the parasympathetic. You start to get into your upper brain and you feel calmer. There's not a state of emergency. Another state of emergency, by the way, is the reptilian brain saying we're starving. we got to eat something, right? So we right. take you out. Of then later on, I discovered that if you carried around something to write with, a smartphone or a pen or a pen and paper, and you wrote down what the pig was saying, just the, just the act of writing it without disputing it, got me further into a state of calmness where I felt like I didn't have to act on it. Now, it turns out that writing is more of a neocortical function than a lower brain function, right? Yeah. Um, it's something we learn later in life. We have to sit and practice. It's a, you know, set of cognitive skills. that, And so that puts you into your, just the act of writing it down also takes you out of the lower brain and puts you into the upper brain. Yeah. Um, but then I discovered that if you wrote down what the pig actually said and examined it, it always had a half truth and a bigger lie. The, the pig is actually lying all the time. There's something, sure. there's something very appealing with it. Uh, if, if I'm talking too much, you need to interrupt no, me. No, no, I love it. Yeah, okay. you're doing great. <laughs> um, and, and so, for example, if the pig says, it's just as easy to start tomorrow, you might as well have the chocolate today. Um, it sounds appealing, like you know, I did work out hard enough. I'm probably not going to gain any weight if I just have one bar or half a bar. Um, it's probably just as easy to start tomorrow. But the truth is it's not for two reasons. First of all, I'm probably not going to have a half, half a bar. It's probably going to be six bars. I mean, right. let, 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 let's get real. What's the point of eating? If, if you like to overeat, then there's no point to having a half a bar. There's just no point. Right. Um, <laughs> um, but secondly, it's wrong because... The principle of neuroplasticity says what fires together, wires together. Mm -hmm. So if you have a craving and then you indulge that craving and reward it with the chocolate, then tomorrow the craving is going to be stronger. Yeah. This works for thoughts also. If you have a craving that goes along with a thought that says, let's just start tomorrow mm -hmm. and you indulge that with chocolate, tomorrow you're not only going to have a stronger craving, but you're going to have a stronger thought. So you will have reinforced the thought. So you'll be more likely to say, let's just start tomorrow, tomorrow. And it snowballs downhill and tomorrow never comes. Right. So you always have to use the present moment to be healthy. The only time you can eat healthy is right now. So if you're in a hole, stop digging and use the present moment to be healthy. So that's, that's an example of how I would dispute what the pig was saying. Mm -hmm. I would dispute the the lie. I would acknowledge the half-truth that kind of seemed true, but I would dispute what it was saying. And I discovered that that was like fixing the holes in the fireplace, right? Mm -hmm. Or yeah. we're pouring sandpaper and sawdust on the greased chute that previously justified me overeating. Mm 
and it was still possible to go down that chute if I really wanted to, but you don't, it, it makes you think twice. You don't really want to. And it's right. the, the act of binging is no longer the psychological term would be ego syntonic. Um, it's, it's no longer consistent with the identity of the kind of person you're trying to be. Right. It, it, it creates a cognitive dissonance and you feel like you're, you recognize that you're lying to yourself and you don't want to be someone who lies to yourself because it creates, we like to have consistent identities. We like to think of ourselves as people that can be counted upon and relied upon and that we can count on ourselves and rely upon ourselves, right? So when we recognize that we're lying to ourselves, it's very uncomfortable. And this is what the disputation process gives us. Then I would take another series of 7-Eleven breaths because exploring the pig squeal excites the reptilian brain again. So you need to calm it down again. And the last thing I would do is I would ask myself, why does, why would complying with my rule, staying on my plan, people will call it a diet, I don't call it a diet, I would, you know, not having chocolate right now, make me a happier, better person. And I've done a lot of work to ask myself, well, why do I want to follow these rules? And it's so I can be a, you know, tall, thin man who walks in the world with integrity and I can, um, you know, have a, have the hopes of a romantic relationship with a woman again, and I can, climb mountains and have more time on top and yeah. be free of worries of cardiovascular disease and kidney disease. And, you know, I, I really want to live a very rich second half of my life. And it, it's, it's important not only to know that, mm-hmm. but at the moment of temptation, once you've conquered the reptilian brain, it's important to bring those feelings into the present and remind yourself why you made that decision. And you, you put that all together and before you know it, you're just becoming a person who follows these, these plants. Um, and eventually, I stopped having a rule about chocolate because I just came a per- became a person who didn't need it. Um, I don't think about it. I, I, I mean, you can, you can eat it on the weekends. You could eat it at baseball games. You could set up whatever rule you want for yourself. And most of my clients don't give things up entirely. But eventually, I decided I don't want the agitation of you know, thinking about chocolate all the time and wondering when I'm going to have it and how much am I going to have and how am I going to stop and how am I going to make up for it? I, I just, enough, ugh, enough. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I just became a person who was sick of the debate. I was sick of the constant fight inside. I was sick of carrying extra weight. And I said, um, I just became a person who didn't need it. And the cravings went away. Um, I, I look at chocolate now and it looks like a big bag of chemicals to me. I don't know why it ever tortured me as much as it did. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I don't even have a rule on my food plan anymore that says I don't eat chocolate. I just became someone who doesn't eat it. And um, so I kind of discovered a process of identity change in the meantime. And I think that in the end, character really trumps will, willpower. When you really know that you're just not a person who does that, mm-hmm. then you're not like white knuckling it all the time and gritting your teeth and thinking, how do I have a little? So I just became a person who doesn't do it. And well, that's my story. Um, I, I published the book when I, when I got divorced, I had to close everything else down. So I took this and turned it into a book. Um, I was a minor partner at a publishing company. I gave it to the CEO. He used it, called me back and says, Glenn, I don't eat donuts. Donuts are pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. <laughs> and he proceeds to lose a hundred pounds over the course of like 18 months or so. Wow. Um, not in a straight line, a little up and down, but, yeah. but he got there. Um, we worked on the marketing and um, we have over a million readers and it's published in multiple languages and I've written six more books. And now people don't quite recognize my name, but if they see me at a bookstore, they might come up to me and go, pig guy. so that's that's my story that's amazing I love that and honestly I think that your story and your personal journey with your you know your childhood your binge eating your experience with chocolate resonates so much with so many people I know that a lot of my listeners are probably thinking oh my gosh that sounds like me right because there's so many of us who who are going through those kinds of things, or, you know, maybe there's that one trigger food sort of like chocolate was for you. That it's like, I can never say no to that, whatever that is for that person. And so it's really great that you 
had this experience with this, you also kind of came at it at all these different angles, right? You had kind of the psychological side, you knew the marketing side of things and how kind of the food industry is using that to kind of trick us into eating things that aren't that great for us. And then, you know, kind of the food industry side of how they're changing our food. And so you really had kind of this full circle of what all kind of goes into that. And I think that's fantastic. Yeah, I, I looking back, I say, wow, I am. Um... There's this Buddhist concept of right life thing. And I said, well, I was like the perfect person in the perfect position to do this because I, I was a food addict myself. I'm a psychologist myself, and I was a consultant for the food industry. So it kind of all came together. I guess um, I guess my life was about thinking about food and psychology because I had to solve a problem for myself. So it kind of makes sense. But um, yeah, yeah it, it worked out pretty well. Absolutely. I love that. And I love the fact that you have named this, this animal in your head. I think that that's so powerful and giving something like that, a name or an identity that you can actually have a conversation or an argument with. I think that's great. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it allows you to separate your constructive versus your destructive thoughts about food and then pull away from the destructive thoughts. So you identify with the constructive thoughts. Uh, that, that's what it really allows you to do. And this is different than your inner wounded child. Um, I, I do believe in inner wounded child work and that type of therapy. I think it's helpful. I don't think it really helps with eating disorders, but I think it helps with a lot of things. Um, this is really a bodily organ inside of you. It, it's a thing that presses you to do some very wild and crazy things. And you need to take control of it like you're taking control of your bladder or your testicles. Yeah. Um, you can remind yourself when you're working on this that if there is an alpha wolf in a wolf pack and one of the lesser wolf wolves challenge for leadership, mm-hmm. the alpha wolf doesn't say, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug. Right. right. <laughs> the, the, the alpha wolf growls and snarls and says, you know, get back in line or I'll kill you. Yeah. Right? It asserts its superiority and by virtue of doing that, it's able to maintain the pack and, and have the energy and benefits of, you know, of the rest of the pack at its disposal. Yeah. Similarly, we, like, we don't want to cut out the reptilian brain. We don't want to remove the energy of the survival drive. We just want to tell it that we're superior and we'll decide how to direct it. And you need to redirect it towards where it needs to go. And speaking of that, it's not enough to just have a rule that says you don't eat this or you don't eat that. As a matter of fact, it's possible to over-restrict like that and make things worse. Sure. You, you need to be flooding your body with nutrition at a slight caloric deficit if you want to lose weight. Mm-hmm. Um, when you restrict too much, if you're uh, people who want to go on a 500 calorie a day diet or you know, if they eliminate a whole food group or something like right. that, it, it uh, often that leaves your body in a depleted state. And then when the pig squeals and says, you know, we really need this, the energy of the survival drive is much stronger. And essentially the pig is saying, come on, we're starving. We have to get something. Right. And it's, and it's kind of right. So you can't, you can't argue with it. Yeah. But if you, if you're flooding your body with nutrition all the time, um, then you can assert superiority and, so that's why when you're experiencing cravings or you make mistakes, you want to analyze what happened and ask yourself, how could I have nourished myself better? I would find, for example, that if I was craving chocolate or if I made a mistake with it, it was usually because I hadn't had enough um, greens, greens and or fruit that day. Mm, yeah. um, and if I made myself, I, when I would experience a craving, in addition to all this other stuff that I do, if I would go and make myself a kale banana smoothie or a kale celery smoothie, yeah. the craving would, it would go away. I wouldn't get high with food the way I would have gotten if I ate the chocolate. Sure. But I would just feel, okay, I'm okay yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you had mentioned earlier that you kept a journal and you wrote down kind of how you were feeling and all of those things. What other things are, are can you explain a little bit more about the, jur- the journal and kind of how that helps the process of, of getting to this place that you can actually say no to these cravings? The, the journal wasn't so much how I was feeling, although that was a part of it. Mm-hmm. The journal was more specifically, what is the pig saying and how is it lying? Yeah. 
Right. Um, so, for example, if the pig would say, you've tried and failed so many times before, mm-hmm. when are you just going to give up and be a happy fat person? Right. right? I, obviously, you obviously can't do this because you've tried so many times before and, and fallen down. Right. So you might, you might as well just give up and accept your, your fit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're very unlikely to succeed in the future because you've failed so many times in the past. Well, I really dug into that one because that used to bother me a lot. And yeah. one of the things I discovered was a set of studies which showed the difference between people who lost weight and kept it off for at least five years mm-hmm. versus people who yo-yo dieted. Sure. And the people who kept it off for five years had significantly more failed attempts behind them mm-hmm. than the people who um, kind of kept gaining the weight back. Yeah. And so what that says is that the path to success goes through repeated failure. It's like the George Harrison song, um, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, with every mistake we must surely be learning. I, yeah. I, I sing like a wounded moose in heat. You know, after she's just been insulted by a passing warthog. That's great. Um, <laughs> but, but it turns out, if you look at the facts, that every time people make an effort, they've learned something. And so past failures are more predictive of future success than future failure. Wow. Uh, it's, it's not true in every situation, but for, for overeating and dieting, that seems to be what the research says. The path to success goes through repeated failures. So when your pig pig says that you've never been able to do this, therefore you never will, Mm -hmm. you're more likely to fail. It's so obvious. You can say, that's absolutely wrong. My past failures are more predictive of future success. Think of a a kid learning how to walk. Mm -hmm. Do you you have kids? Yes. (laughs) um, A boy or a girl? I have two. I have one of each. Okay. So when, (laughs) when your daughter was learning how to walk, and she'd get up and fall down and get up and fall down and get up and fall down. Did you ever say, obviously, you're never going to get it. You might as well just crawl the rest of your life. Stay down. Stay down. It's not right. <laughs> you don't do that. Right. So, so it turns out that that type of cruelty, that type of self-criticism um, yeah. is the reptilian's brain, brain's effort to get you to feel too weak to resist the next bench. Mm-hmm. And it's not true. So the journaling would identify those types of thoughts, and then I could specifically research them and learn how to disempower them. That's what the journaling was about. Sometimes I would get stuck in the emotional efforts, but I didn't really make progress until I I realized that those difficulty processing emotions and the desire for emotional connections, it's a real part of my life and I have to work on that, but it didn't have anything to do with overeating. Mesa says, say something else about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, people think the relationship between emotions and overeating is one way. Mm-hmm. They believe you have the, you know, the fire, the, the excitation of emotion, the emotional disturbance, and then you have overeating. The ashes get out and burn down the house. Sure. Um, and then I, I kind of introduced there's a fireplace. So now people see there's an intervention. But the truth is that it's not a one-way relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, take anxiety, for example. A lot of people tell me that they are too anxious to go to sleep without overeating. And that's their biggest problem. I actually wrote a whole book on this. Um, well, it turns out that anxiety has a lot of physiological correlates. Your heart rate goes up. Your galvanic skin response goes up. Your blood pressure goes up a little bit your respiration and perspiration go up a little bit. This can be measured. Okay. Now look at some animal studies where they look at heightened blood pressure, heightened respiration, heightened perspiration, and they give the animal, for example, a baboon. They did a study with baboons where every time the baboons had high blood pressure, they gave it a sugar reward. Mm -hmm. Don't you know that when they measured that baboon's blood pressure repeatedly throughout the day, that baboon has learned to produce sustained high blood pressure. Wow. So, so the food reward mm-hmm. reinforced the physiological state that we experience as anxiety. Yeah, wow. So it goes in both directions. Often people will say, you know, I'm just too anxious to stop overeating. Well, you're overeating too much to stop being anxious. Right? It's right. Often, and, and often this can happen for depression. Often the depressed state can be reinforced 
by right. overeating. It can happen for rage. It can. So um, what a lot of people find is that when they sever the link between emotions and overeating and they just really focus on these cognitive components and they you know, focus on flooding their body with nutrition and they take these very practical steps yeah. that their emotional problem isn't quite as serious as they thought it was in the first place. It was being reinforced by all the sugar and starch and you know, hyperpalatable concentrations right. of food-like substances. Um, and one last thing I will say about emotions and overeating. Um, people will say they eat for comfort or to numb out, to quote unquote numb out. Sure. I say, well, that's interesting. When you go to the dentist, if he's out of Novocaine, does he say, can I inject you with a bagel? You know, so, so, so we can numb no, you out. <laughs> There's something more going on. We are, we're not just overeating to numb out. We're overeating to get high with food. Right. Like we did not have, you know, pizza and Pop-Tarts and, you know, and, and sugar and flour and all these concentrations of pleasure. These are unnatural concentrations of pleasure. I'm all for eating them if you really want to. And, you know, there are ways you can work it out to do that. But don't think that it's natural. Mm -hmm. We didn't have them in the Savannah. And that unnatural super concentration of starch and shirt, of all those things, it does things to your body. It burns out your pleasure centers. It's another word for it as a drug. You're not just overeating to numb out, you're overeating to get high with food. The reason it's important to switch that paradigm is most people don't want to feel like a drug addict. Uh, if when you're saying I'm eating for comfort, you're very prone to going back to the um, nurturing your inner wounded child paradigm. You know, and, and your pig will take advantage of that. It's like, we're hurting so much. And I just need a little chocolate. It can't hurt so bad. It's feed me. Just feed yeah. me. <laughs> right. <laughs> so. <laughs> I love that. And I think too, it's really important that, you know, we can sometimes kind of disillusion ourselves that we're so evolved and we're just this amazing species that can do all these great things, which is true, but really there's such a part of us that's still very primitive and those functions still are very active in our, in our bodies and the way that we work. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Very and nice. so I think it's yeah. really interesting that, that you've kind of connected these things together and how, how we're kind of using um, kind of our, our, evolved like brain with this primitive brain and how it, it kind of conflicts with each other. That's I true. Love that. Yeah. So what, so what I want people to do is start with one simple rule. Is there, most people set the bar way too high when they're trying to be good. It's like that old nursery rhyme. When she was good, she was very, very good. But when she was bad, she was horrid. Yeah. Most overeaters are good dieters. Most mm -hmm. overeaters have had the experience of losing weight and can't eat all back. Um, Get step off the feast and famine roller coaster. Mm -hmm. st st step off that roller coaster. Set up just one simple rule to prove to yourself that you can and will do this. That you that you're in charge, not your internal organs. Okay. And these are these are rules that um, it, it's not it's something that's not so burdensome to you. You probably won't lose weight the first week that you're at this, mm -hmm. um, but you'll you'll know that you're in charge. So, for example. Um, I knew a, of a truck driver who had to eat at fast food restaurants, truck stops three, three times a day. Okay. And he said, I'm not going to stop doing that. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you what I will do is I won't go back for seconds. So three times a day, he's eating fast food, but he doesn't go back for seconds. He starts to feel like he's in charge. That was the beginning of his weight loss journey. He lost 150 pounds. Wow. Right? Um, I, I know people who will say, I don't want to give up any food. I just want to have rules to support mindfulness. Mm -hmm. So maybe I will always put my fork down between bites. Or I will never eat in front of a screen again. Or I want it in the car again, right? Right. Um, other people only seem to have trouble with certain foods in certain situations. So they might say, I will never eat pretzels at a major league baseball game, mm -hmm. right? Um, some people have trouble in restaurants and then find that they don't if they make very specific boundaries. So right. they'll say, you know, I will never eat bread again, except at a restaurant, except for two slices at a restaurant twice per calendar week. Right. right. One simple rule that seems easy to follow, be, be kind to yourself, show yourself that you're the boss. And then as soon as you draw that line in the sand, listen for your pig or 
call it something else if you want to. But yes. Listen for your you know inner food monster to start squealing for you to break that monster. It's it's supposed to. That doesn't mean something's wrong. It means something is right. Yeah. And then go through the process we talked about. Take, take the 7-Eleven breath, write down what the pig is saying, write down why it's wrong, ask yourself, why would I be a happier, better person if I stuck to this one simple rule? Do this sure. for a week or so until you're really sure that you can keep it up before mm-hmm. you add something else. Okay. Yeah. And so how many... Typically, how many different rules do you see before you kind of see major changes in people? Or, or does it vary depending on the person? I usually see major changes based on the first rule. Okay. Because the difference between being your pig's slave versus being its master is night and day. Right. And people usually feel ridiculously inspired when they say that they're capable of following one simple rule. Sometimes even just for one day, it makes all the difference. Right. Um, and that inspiration translates to the rest of their food and the rest of their life. They, they, without having any other rules, they start to just eat healthier. So I usually see major changes within the first couple of weeks. And when we measure the statistics of our efficacy with our program, we get a 90% reduction in binge frequency in the first month. Wow. Um, so this, it's kind of a miracle. Yeah. It's, 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 that, that's not an anecdotal result. That's the average result. That's the typical result for clients that are, uh, engage with the program. Uh, and we have, we define that as being willing to email your coach every other day and yeah. um, do at least some of the tasks. So, um, you know, it really is kind of a miracle to start with. And the, the types of food plans we see, um, usually if people have more than six rules, they're obsessing a little too much and it's, it's going to fall apart later on. Yeah. Um, sometimes people need 10 or 12 to start with, but often when I see people who have 10 or 12 rules, they're usually conditions under which they're trying to manage to eat something that they really can't be eating in the first place. So I, I've seen fruit. One woman came to me with 43 rules about when she was allowed to have sugar. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I said, she, she, she's just not willing to give it up. And so, so I'd work with her and then she would see they had to be condensed and broadened a little bit. And then right. uh, my program is diet agnostic. I, I don't tell anybody what to eat. It's important that people feel in control over their own food plan as opposed to being um, you know, held accountable, told what they're supposed to do. Because right. if you, one thing I find with, with overeaters is that they will swear up and down that they want to follow this doctor's diet or that doctor's diet. And then eventually the pig will say, this doctor's diet is no good. That guy's a charlatan. That guy's a fraud. <laughs> Yippee. We'll have to find another one. But in the meantime, let's just bench. Right? right. And so part of what I say is do all the reading you want to, but probably with everything you've looked at and, you know, most overeaters, this is not their first diet. This is not their first radio. Yeah. Um, so you probably know what's going to work for you. And okay. it's about time you took control over it, take responsibility for yourself. Um, I'll help you stick to it. So yeah, absolutely. That, that's what we do. I, I don't tell people what to eat. I love that. And it's, that's such amazing rates that you have for success. I mean, that's been, that's speaks volumes all in of itself. And that's really amazing. And I think it is great to not kind of tell people you know, this is your list of foods you can eat and this is what you can't because what happens is people tend to want to focus on what they can't have instead of yeah. what they can have. Um, so do you find though that it needs to be a very specific, this one rule needs to be very specific. So let's say I'm going to say I'm not having chocolate all week, but then I can have it on the weekend. Do I then need to make sure that I'm saying how much I can have on the weekend to avoid kind of a binge situation on the weekend or? Well, it's, you- different. it's different for different people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're generally in favor of leaving maximum freedom in place unless the person is in danger. It's, it's kind of like being a city traffic planner. You yeah. don't want to put a stoplight at an intersection where you're not having a- accidents because you're impeding the free flow of traffic. Right. Similarly, you don't want to create a never rule or a conditional rule with very specific limits if it's in a uh, behavior area that's not really troubled for you. But if you're having trouble, if you're not able to implement it, then putting that traffic light in place is probably a good idea. For some people who know that they've had trouble with everything, you could start with the traffic light and then loosen up a little and see if you're okay. Yeah. We we generally start with a higher level of freedom rather than a lower level of freedom. 
Yeah, I love that. That's really fantastic. I just, I just love what you're doing. And I love that the success that you're having and, and I love the inner pig. That's just my favorite thing. I love that. (laughs) But I go ahead. I just want to alert you. I have to be on a, on a radio show in about five minutes. Okay. I definitely want to give you time to um, give us your information, where they can find you, where they can find your book, all of those great things. It's really easy. If you go to neverbingeagain.com and click the big red button, we will give you three things. Um, one is I will get you a free copy of the book, um, Never Binge Again, in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. Wow. So the digital formats are free. Um, we do have Audible for a charge. We do have paperback for a charge, but the digital formats are free. Sure. The, and I recommend at minimum everybody goes and takes a look at that. The second thing we'll give you is a set of food plan starter templates. I want to show you what sets of rules look like for different dietary philosophies. Mm. So again, the program is diet agnostic. People follow it on all different sorts of diets. We have programs for plant-based people. We have programs for keto people. We have um, programs for point counters, calorie counters. Whatever you're doing, there's a set of food plan starter templates. And I call them starter templates because I'm not taking responsibility for what you're eating. I, I'm not even a medical doctor or a dietitian. I'm a, I'm a shrink. So I, I can't take responsibility for what you're eating, mm-hmm. um, but you can, right. but you can. So you get a set of food plan starter templates for free. And I've also recorded a set of full length coaching sessions because I know I just seem like a weird ass psychologist who's got a pig inside of them. And, <laughs> and, and you're wondering why does Brandy have this guy in the show? And I know it sounds harsh and you're all thinking, doesn't this hurt your self-esteem? What? I know what you're thinking, but trust me, go listen to a couple of people getting coached through this. It's all free. And, um, and you will see that it's actually something that can take them from feeling uh, powerless and hopeless and despairing and depressed mm-hmm. about food to enthusiastic and hopeful and optimistic in, and very energetic in just one session. So go, go listen to a couple of those and you will, um, you'll be hooked, I promise. So never binge again, click the big red button and sign up for the reader bonus list. Perfect. Thank you so much. And you guys, I'll make sure to put that in the show notes as well so that you have easy access and so that you can reach out to Glenn and get all of his wonderful information. And Glenn, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing Thanks. your story and all of your information. I feel like I didn't let you talk, but um, I oh, we're here to hear you. So it's perfectly fine. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Terrific. Thanks, Brandy. All right. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening to another episode of Functionally Autoimmune. And we will catch you next time. Welcome to the show, and thank you so much for listening. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens, with 75 absorbable vitamins and minerals in just one scoop per day. I've increased my energy, immune function, and so much more. AG is a non-negotiable part of my daily routine. For your own risk-free AG, plus 20% off, and free vitamin D3 K2 supplement, go to www.athleticgreens.com backslash functionally autoimmune, or look in the notes of this podcast and you can find the link there. Trust me, you want to add athletic greens to your day. It makes such a huge difference.